1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to pick up on the conversation that we had a couple of weeks ago with uh, Weiwei Chen when we were talking about Chinese private sector engagement in Ethiopia. But now we're going to step back a little bit and look at uh, what's going on across the continent, and it has been a very busy past few weeks and even past few months in the private sector, engagement sector. Let me just give you a a couple data points on the chart here to consider. Uh, Transin, the hugely successful mobile phone company, that produces Infinix, Techno, a whole bunch of phones that are now the dominant cell phone carry- well, uh brand in, in Africa, just did a deal with NetEase to lead a $40 million investment into Nigeria's Pompeii, which is a mobile payment system. Then there was Hill House Capital and Crystal Stream, who led a Series A round for the uh, Uber of trucks in Africa, known as Lorry Systems. Uh, and then again, Transcend's IPO earlier this year Uh, demonstrated the huge potential of the Chinese private sector in Africa, where they received a valuation of $7 billion based on their first couple weeks of trading. So it really demonstrates that there's a lot of interest, a lot of activity uh, from Chinese corporate and investors, and now venture capital and private equity are also starting to come into the mix. Now, Kobus, I'd like to get your take on this in part because we don't hear The Chinese talking about private sector engagement the way we do the Americans, uh, the French, and the Japanese. And I think we talked about this with Weiwei Chen, but let's dive a little bit deeper now on that very topic, because it does seem to me that the Americans in particular like to talk about private sector, but their companies are hesitant to get into the market. We oftentimes hear that uh, African consumers are not wealthy enough. They haven't hit the benchmarks of middle class and, and middle income countries and it's a difficult fragmented market to be able to to get into that doesn't seem to be stopping the chinese even though chinese government Rhetoric isn't really promoting it and talking about it in the same way that other countries are.
2: It's a very strange um, distinction because you know when you go to development meetings um, uh, with with German or Japanese or or American partners, that's all they talk about. That's everything is public-private partnership. It's all about you know making making it easier for for foreign companies to do business in Africa, changing the business climate in Africa. That's really everything. Everyone's talking about that. But when you actually then you know kind of start to talk about what the what the the companies are actually doing. It turns out that the companies who are very active in Africa are companies that have been active in Africa before companies like Ford like toyota for example um and it's actually quite hard to get to get companies from uh, from Western countries and from japan to to make a fresh commitment um to Africa for the first time and you know kind of when you, when you speak to them then it's it is all these kind of risks that they raise you know that it's complicated to do business in Africa. It's difficult to the last mile problem. It's difficult to get your products right to consumers. Um, and to the extent that that in the previous TCAD, um meeting in in 2016, there was a commitment. Um, for a certain amount of, of investment from the from the Japanese private sector to Africa. And in the run-up to TICA this year, they actually had to do some creative accounting to actually, you know, show that they, they reached that that target. Like, it, you know, Japanese businesses are that risk-averse about Africa. And meanwhile, the Chinese government isn't really talking about the, this kind of promotion of private investment very much at all. Um, I think they're doing it a little bit more now than they used to. It used to be very state-centered and slowly kind of, The rhetoric is opening up to private sector investment, but there's a lot of Chinese private sector companies working in Africa already and a lot of new ones coming in.
1: Well, let's get the Chinese perspective on what Chinese corporates and private sector companies are thinking about the opportunities in terms of entering in the African market and what sectors. So we wanted to get really someone who's in the trenches and who is actually Talking with clients about that, and we found the perfect person. Kai Drew is the deal team leader on the Africa China Corridor team at Absa Corporate and Investment Bank, one of Africa's largest banks. He's based in Johannesburg and uh, joins us on the line. A very good afternoon to you, Kai. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for hosting me, uh, Eric and Copas. You are responsible for the China client relationships at Absa. You talk to Chinese clients every single day about doing business in Africa. Uh, Let's just kind of start our conversation today about what are you hearing? Because what we're reading right now, and what I'm writing about for our newsletter subscribers every day, is that there's a lot of activity. It's really picking up. I mean, Hill House Capital, Crystal Stream, Transcend, NetEase, let's just go down the line of Chinese venture capital, private equity, and corporate deals. It seems like 2019, it really picked up pace.
3: Yeah, I think Uh, What really happened, you know, I think, of course, you know, China has been uh, Africa's largest trade partner for the past nine consecutive years. And then if we look at, you know, China-Africa cooperation, I think we definitely need to mention the Forum on China-Africa cooperation, which is the CAC, And then recently in Beijing in 2018, you know, the Chinese president, committed over $60 billion support to Africa for the next three years, including various grants, concessional loans, buyers credit, DFI, DFI finance, and then even they're gonna set up they have already set up a fund to encourage Africa's export to China. And one thing particularly I think which closely tied to our today's topic is that the Chinese president encourages more investment into Africa. 10 billion for the next three years and then in which part they, he also wishes to see, you know, private enterprise from China is going to play a leading role. Then since the 4 2018, you know, I think even before that, you know, gradually, personally, I've been in South Africa for over seven years. So I've seen the interesting part, you know, is that, you know, lots of the Chinese manufacturers are thinking of setting up their Uh, localized plants in Africa, even maybe before 2018, like they might already setting up, you know, in two or three years ago. And then one of the key reasons is that we need to know, you know, maybe people don't realize that, you know, currently Africa has a population of uh, 1.2 billion. Then we expect such population to double by 2050. So then, you know, naturally, you know, if you are a baby diaper manufacturer, Considering you know the zero or negative growth maybe in across you know Europe, Japan, not even China, then you know we know the population of Africa is gonna double. Then naturally, you know, they want to set up a local plan, you know, in Africa. And one of the key reasons is about, you know, if they are if for their baby diaper plan in China, they might, you know, make one percent, three percent, you know, profit margin. But then setting up in Africa then that only not only helps them in terms of the customer duties, it also helps them for the local content and then, you know, and also for them to better service, you know, the local and regional markets. So it it's also gonna be a big boost for their profit margin. I think that's one of the key reasons, you know, given the, the rising population of the Africa population by 2050 then we see the poten- the big lots of potentials around that you know as people grow you need the diapers you need power you need you know port you know, the infrastructure so eventually you know if we also look at you know IMF reports or the World Bank reports probably in the next 10 or 20 years the the fastest business economic growth region would be southeast asia then the second region would be africa So that's why, you know, I'm quite excited to see all these kind of opportunities. You know, on the other side, you know, as Corbis just mentioned, you know, for PPP and then, you know, for some fresh investments, you know, you really, you want to do a PPP project in a more stable, you know, region or government. So you know the certainty of the government policies. But then I've also personally seen you know the Chinese investors, both private and uh, you know state owned are are shifting more through just you know as a contractor now they are the Chinese are involved more for equity, then sometimes even majority own lots of the power infrastructure projects in Africa. so those are exciting you know changes you know as a banker I'm excited to see because then definitely they need you know more local banks' expertise of structuring such deals and get involved involved early to make the projects bankable. And also it helps, you know, to, you know, lift some of the sovereign borrowing, you know, from some of the African countries because uh, initially lots of the borrowing might, you need a Ministry of Finance to borrow, but now, you know, moving to the PPP, then, you know, maybe the Ministry of Finance only needs to provide a letter of support that helps, you know, for them to secure debt in a more sustainable way, so I'm very excited.
2: So you know, as as we as you mentioned, um, you know, Africa has as a, a massive potential, massive um, youth market, emerging youth market, um, and it's a, it's a very large population. Um, but at the same time, obviously, it's 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 lots of countries. It's 54 countries, um, and so how, how do those different countries kind of compare to each other if you if you look at at where some of these these new uh deals are landing in particular kind of public private partnership deals um and private investment um w- like which countries are leading and w- like what which kinds of of environments really favor these kinds of investments
3: i think um probably you know as a geography you know my personal opinion there you have a piece of like North Africa, which is more close to Middle East and Europe. And then you have, you know, sub-Sahara or Southern Africa, which are more English-speaking. And then you have then West Africa. Lots of the countries are French-speaking. So in my opinion, you know, really, you know, it's Northern Africa, Sub Southern Africa, and then, you know, West Africa. Those are the main, maybe three Africa regions we are looking at. And then, you know, in terms of the PPP, usually it helps, you know, to have a PPP in one of, in some of the leading economies of the Africa continent. So, for example, you know, well, as an EPSA bank, we are not present in Egypt, then, but we've seen some good PPP deals or project finance deals, you know, particularly in the renewable energy program in South Africa. And then we see uh, there are road, you know, PPP, road annuity program rolling out in Kenya. And then Egypt, I'm unable to comment, but usually, you know, for, for PPP, then, you know, investors focus on sustainable cash flows and on a relatively, you know, easy to do business jurisdiction. Then those are, you know, the key countries and, you know, and... Sectors where I see you know the PPP or private you know investment are getting involved in Africa.
1: When you say PPP, is the definition of public-private partnership for the Chinese different than what it is for say the the U.S. and Europe? Because it seems to me as as an observer of this that the U.S. and Europeans are running into a lot more problems in getting projects off the ground due to corruption, due to due all the different stakeholders that come in. One of the advantages that the Chinese had when the state-owned enterprises were coming in, not necessarily the private sector companies, was that they would come in with the financing, they would come in with the construction, they would come in oftentimes with even parts of the, the, the human resources, and deals just got done. And basically, money went from one side of Chang'an Avenue in Beijing to another side of Chang'an Avenue, and the money didn't even come into Africa very much. And they were able to get stuff done very, very quickly. And that explains in part how the Chinese over the past 10 years have built so much infrastructure is because they reduced the number of stakeholders who were involved in the decision. In the PPP context, oftentimes the number of stakeholders becomes much bigger. And as a result of that, it gets bogged down in bureaucracy and in corruption and all sorts of delays and whatnot. That's at least what I'm seeing, particularly in Kenya, with the Nairobi to... Uh, Jomo Kenyatta International Airport rail line for the French and also the Nairobi to Mombasa uh, expressway for the Americans where they're, they're bogged down. Are the Chinese have a different definition of PPP than what we're seeing in, from other countries?
0: Uh,
3: I, think, um, I think the Chinese definition of the PPP is as, as long as my understanding from, for the deal we are executing right now with the leading Chinese contractors, it's uh, more or less aligned with, you know, with the Africa and the the international definition, so although you know still you know that project we followed, it's still you know led by the Chinese state-owned enterprises. So you know uh, differs from maybe the other contractors you know in the world. The unique strength of the con- the Chinese contractors is that you know China alone is a big economy, you know with population 1.3 billion, and then in the past 20 or 30 years. China has done so many, you know, world-leading infrastructure projects. Then the technical know-how and then, you know, the benefits from, you know, massive procurement and economy of scale actually allows the Chinese contractors to compete very, you know, competitively in China and globally. So currently, you know, before today's, you know, conversation, I look at, you know, the Google's ENR's top, top 100 global contractors. If you look at the top 10, maybe, uh, not maybe, I just looked at earlier this morning, so the seven are actually from China, and then the top four are all of the Chinese contractors. So then, you know, for, for those kind of projects, then you need to uh, have some contractor who has the technical know-how, and then who has the, you know, the access to the raw material suppliers, who can, you know, who more or less are willing to do an EPC turnkey, you know, fixed price contract, so no cost overrun, and then, you know, who can deliver in time, you know. Lots of the projects we've seen, especially those massive infrastructure or power projects, you know, the cost overrun is costing the sponsors lots of, you know, additional capital. Then, you know, due to the change of scope or cost of run, overrun or time delay, then you see eventually some of the projects were not really delivered at all. So, you know, that that's one you know one area we see, you know, the the strength of the Chinese. So so far all the facility and the project agreements and documentation in which APSA is discussing with the Chinese clients are definitely aligned, you know, with with the international and African standards. Because we are an African band, our expertise is in Africa. So we don't really have expertise on China law. So lots of the, the governing documentation are uh, market standards and align you know, with international law, English law or international law. That's where I see.
0: Support for this podcast comes from the African china Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg, The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at vidschinaafrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. You know,
2: in the intro, Eric mentioned that you know that while there's this strong discourse about the need for all the opportunity for for public-private partnerships and the need for Western and and other Japan Japanese and South Korean and so on companies to to invest more in Africa, they seem a lot more hesitant than the Chinese companies. Um, why? What do you ascribe? that difference too? Like, why are, the, why are the Chinese companies so much more enthusiastic to kind of jump into Africa while other companies are not?
3: So, I think uh, we... There are probably a big, big thing people need to realise is that, you know, although China has been, you know, Africa's biggest trade partner for the nine past nine years, so as of today, as an investor for Africa... China's investment is still falling behind maybe at least in the UK and the US. So China is still not Africa's biggest investor. So maybe with total aggregate investment stock around 46, 47 billion. Then, you know, then on the other side, from trade perspective, China is leading. So then, you know, we just need to first know the difference between, you know, whether it's the trade, biggest trade partner or the biggest investor. And then the other thing, I think, you know, for the Chinese um, private owned, because the Chinese market, the competition is high, then, you know, the, the given, you know, the, as, as Eric, you've stayed in China for many years and also in Shanghai, you know, recently in the coastal region, you know, the more developed region of China, the cost of labor in China is picking up. And then lots of the MNC actually moving their China bases to, to the the mid part, of the west part of China, or maybe they are mo- already shifting to, you know, Southeast Asia, and then you know the the other destination, you know, is is probably Africa because setting up in Africa for those private manufacturers, it's actually not something they can consider whether they want to do or not to do to for business expansion. It's actually for their survival. If they remain in China, they might gonna just need to deal with you know continuously rising labour cost and then you know declining profit margin. Why, you know, in Africa, you know, the relatively, you know, the government welcomes their investment because, you know, lots of the manufacturers they create thousands of jobs to the local people. You know, we know the unemployment rate is high for lots of the African countries. And then on the other side, you know, the the for example, if as a baby diaper, if you import the raw materials into one African country versus you import the the finished products you know into one country, you face very different sometimes you ten percent fifty percent custom tax difference that actually helps them to you know have a high margin and then on the other side, you know if we look at those major power infrastructure airports projects done by the Chinese. State-owned, you know, sometimes, you know, the the good thing about the state-owned is that sometimes they do have a social responsibility. They are just not purely chasing for profits. You know, lots of the major projects, you know, uh, power infrastructure executed by the state-owned contractors from China, lots of projects are witnessed the signing, you know, by the ambassadors, by the prime ministers or presidents. So more or less, you know, the the decision makers of this state-owned, they do have a social and, a, you know, government responsibility to ensure such projects are a success, you know, because, you know, the China-Africa relationship is not only economical, it's also politically important,
1: you know. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the, the pressures on the state-owned companies to make it a success, in part because we just saw this week uh, that Beijing Automotive Uh, B.A.I.C. set up a big factory in South Africa, and it's running two years behind schedule. They ran into a lot of difficulties with management, labor unions, and just adapting to manufacturing In South Africa. Now, you're the one of the first people probably that someone like Beijing Automotive or the big Chinese companies call when they want to come to Africa. And they probably pick up the phone and I'd be curious to say what's that conversation like when they do those first exploratory calls with you to find out, okay, we think we have to come into the African market either because we want to create products for African consumers or we want to use it as an export base to the United States, in Agoa countries, or to Europe where they have free trade privileges. So what are those initial conversations like from Chinese companies? What are the questions that they're asking you about the opportunities there? And what are their concerns?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, I'm actually, you know, honored to be part of the DEER team, you know, And actually, you know, they, and when they entered South Africa, you know, APSA was indeed, you know, the first company, the bank they contacted, you know. So, so I supported our chief executive at that time, you know, for some, you know, high level discussion and then the initial discussion. You know, I think one of their plan is only, uh, you know, Beijing Auto, they, they are very successful in China. And then, you know, they have the JVs, you know, with Hyundai, with, with Mercedes. But then for them to be a really you know a leader in the industry and in the global space, they more or less also want to penetrate into a market or some markets in which you know is not so familiar, you know. Like usually, you know, the the good thing given China is the world's number two economy, then if if you look at you know um the Chinese enterprises, if they are maybe the the top ten in China, they might be the top thirty or top fifty in in the world anyway. Even though their internationalization was not so so big, you know, maybe only international business counts around ten or fifteen percent of their overall group business, they are already you know <laughs> a global champion. So then, one of the key reasons you know for Beijing Auto to move to to Africa or setting up a manufacturing plan is first is that they want to. To um, to be more internationalized, to be competitive internationally, and also you know they want to they see the future of the of the um, Africa consumers you know from South Africa and from the region, and then you know given you know Absa we are one of the top banks of you know working with the the auto manufacturers you know either from such as from the US you know then they just want to see you know whether we can you know help them to penetrate into this market and then you know want that those are you know what really happened you know between for the background and before they came here they want to know you know our uh, some of the lessons they, they want to know the local market economics, they want to know the industry analysis, you know, which are all, you know, more or less, you know, through the public information, but but we, are, we give them lots of support when they were trying to navigate the the market. So then eventually, I think their investment plan they was announced You know, during a, a high delegation visiting, you know, South Africa and then for the signing, you know.
1: Yeah, but Beijing Automotive uh, is is certainly one example. But what are some of the other questions and concerns that Chinese companies have about coming into the African market that you, in those early conversations that you have, beyond Beijing Automotive, but some of the other, kind of in general, when someone picks up the phone and says, you know, Kai, I'd like to find out what's going on in Africa. What are those questions and concerns that they have?
3: I think, you know, if we talk about the key questions, you know, I think, and all concerns, definitely Two biggest things coming to the Chinese investors, probably all the global investors in mind is that first one is about you know the the volatility of the foreign exchange, and then the second one would be the consistency of the government policy you know for example the one, Beijing auto Beijing auto's plan is seven hundred million and then if if we talk lots of power infrastructure projects you know you need around ten or fifteen years to, to receive, like to meet their investment return. And then, you know, from time to time, you know, due to the foreign exchange volatility, and then due to, you know, policy changes, then, you know, they have to adjust their financial models for cash flows. And then this gives lots of the uncertainty for them. For example, for lots of the African countries, you know, 10%, 15% foreign exchange, you know, depreciation or appreciate, appreciation is the normal thing, you know. And then, you know, uh, and then i give you an exact example. For example, um, we have some mining clients in one country, and then they pay the VAT, oh, sorry, they pay the, the VAT in local currency. Then, you know, they receive the VAT, maybe refund, in about six or 12 months, still in local currency. But then all their sales are in, you know, maybe if it's a commodities exporter, all of their sales are in dollars then, you know, for the six or 12 months gap to receive by converting dollar to pay VAT, uh, to pay local currency and then getting the local currency tax refund and converting back to dollar, that, the FX loss is hitting them quite a lot, you know, uh, on an annual basis. And then, for example, if I'm a Chinese investor, come here to invest on a road or on, for power projects, then I don't want, you know, the government comes to me in about five years' time saying, you know, there's a change of government. We revised our policy. Now we need to lower your tax or we need to lower your, your tariff, electricity tariff, you know. So, but sometimes I do see these kind of, you know, things happen, which is unfortunate. It also hurts, you know, investors' confidence to invest in Africa.
2: Um. You know, in relation to currency, um, the there's been a long a long discussion over the last few years about the possibility of of um, di- direct RMB transactions um, being used more and more in Africa, um, also in in spaces that are traditionally dominated by um, by the US dollar, like the oil industry, for example. Um, you know, as more and more Chinese private companies are moving into Africa, like how how is the the currency situation changing, and how how uh, are we going to be seeing a lot? lot more kind of mainstreaming of r and um, transactions in Africa? Uh,
3: that's a very good question. You know, uh, as a bank, we are fully supportive, you know, for ZMNB's internationalization in Africa. But from what we've seen, you know, it's, it hasn't, you know, the ZMNB in the progress of ZMNB usage as a trade settlement currency hasn't been as widely applied as in countries in, of the Southeast you know, Asia or Europe, or maybe not even the US. I think key reasons is that, you know, probably the African clients, they do not have the source for the minby. So then, you know, although I do know, maybe some of the Chinese suppliers, you saying you know, if you pay me in the minby, I can give you some additional discount. But the problem is that the, the African clients, they do not have a source of Zminbi income. Then, you know, although, you know, I think right now the Chinese government is encouraging the African corporates and banks to to tap into the ZMNB market, you know, the capital market. And also, you know, there is some, um, I think, slow progress to promote for some of the maybe copper Iron ore or oil to be priced in the minbi. I think if eventually that happens, you know, which, you know, opens the access of the minbi income, then that, that's going to help to lift the the much wider usage of the minbi in Africa. So, so far, I believe, you know, the, the minbi. China-Africa, the Minbi cooperation might be only still, you know, uh, limited to lots of the African central central bank using the minbi as a reserve currency. But the Minbi hasn't been much widely used as a trade settlement, you know, currency in
1: Africa yet. It seems like that'll be a long way to go before that's actually, uh, you know, on par with the dollar or the euro as a trade as a as a settlement currency. It just seems I mean it it seems like it just has a long way to go for that. But uh but it's starting, certainly definitely starting. Uh let's close our discussion Kai uh looking into some of the different s- sectors because I know a lot of our listeners are going to be wondering where should they expect to see Chinese investment go, say, in 2020 and in the years ahead? This year, it was definitely all about tech. I mean, there was just so much activity in the tech sector. You gave some examples about diapers, for example, and certainly automotive. Automotive is very, very big right now. If Chinese Automotive, First Automotive, Gili, Beijing Automotive, SAIC, uh, Haval, all are doing deals now in Africa. So I think African consumers can expect to see a lot more Chinese vehicles, trucks and motorcycles on the roads uh, across the continent. But tell me a little bit more about the different sectors, uh, some of the, different, the other areas that you might think uh, Chinese investors will be interested in, say, 2020.
3: Yeah, I think, you know, some of the interesting sectors, you know, definitely I believe, you know, the, you know, the power and infrastructure are happening or will be happening, you know, given, you know, the China, you know, China's core power, their total installed capacity is around 48% of the world. And then China's renewables, you know, solar, PV, they are also, you know, with total installed capacity, China is also, you know, top in the world. Uh, and also we see, you know, the road is moving from, you know, direct sovereign borrowing to PPP. So the power and the infrastructure is definitely a key sector. We we are seeing you know it's gonna happen with lots of the Chinese interest and also as you mentioned you know the 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 telecom the TMT sector you know given you know we are now on the fourth industrial revolution and then you know lots of the uh lots of the uh we believe you know given the rising population of Africa more more and more people will be you know mobile and also you know have much wider access to internet so then we definitely need to build more more a lot of the 5G 4G the fiber optic you know the networks and then i think where well, one of the interesting sector we mentioned manufacturing the other thing maybe we haven't mentioned about is the agriculture you know so the agriculture has been you know a very interesting part and actually played at the center of the china africa cooperation for the next maybe 5 or 10 years so you know we know you know Africa has lots of arable land, but then the you know the the yield rate from those arable lands has have, have been low. So Af- China has have you know worked officially and unofficially with lots of the pilot program with the Africa you know farmers. So one of the, the deals in which I'm honored to to get involved is that you know the Chinese is uh, is doing the contracting for some of the solar milling. You know projects in Zambia. So you know in the old days, you know once you have your corn, you want to mill them into flour, and then you know you you probably need a donkey to walk over the night to get the job done. Then they did the analysis with the solar milling. You know you only need three hours to do to have the same level of outputs. You know those kind of small small scale medium scale agri, you know cooperation is also something you know we we are key and. Keen to get involved with, and we are seeing lots of things are happening at the moment.
1: There's no doubt that the pace is going to keep really, really high. I think in 2020, we're not seeing any indications of a slowdown, and that's going to be good news for Kaiju and his bosses at Absa Bank because I think the phone is going to be ringing quite a bit for you. Kaiju is the deal team leader. On the Africa-China Corridor team at the APSA Corporate and Investment Bank in Johannesburg, he is responsible primarily for the China-client relationships at one of Africa's largest banks. Kaiju, we're so thankful that you uh, had took some time out of your very busy schedule to join us and to share some of your insights. It would be great to follow up with you in early next year just to kind of see how we are progressing in some of these these different sectors that you talked about, because this is going to be an area that we're going to be very keen to follow in the weeks and months ahead. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
3: Thanks, guys, for your time. I'm also very passionate and keen to have some further conversations
1: with you guys. Cobas, two things stood out to me from the discussion with Kai. Number one was the concerns that Chinese investors have in Africa strike me as being far more pragmatic and unemotional than what we would hear from, say, European or Americans. And I might be wrong here, so just I I'll I'll put that out there. But when we talk to Americans about investing in Africa, you hear a lot about how the fact that the market is not wealthy enough, it's too fragmented, there's a lot of instability, there's things like Ebola, there's, you know, wars in the DRC, and all of the things get mushed together, and those anxieties kind of fog how people see the market. And yet, hearing from Kai, it's about regulatory issues, and currency, which is just bottom line issues. (laughs) And that's how the Chinese do business in many respects, which is, yeah, 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 forget about the conflict, forget about the war, I just need to know what's the (laughs) P&L. So that was interesting. And the other thing that I thought was interesting that kind of stood out for me was, again, we hear this over and over again, the Chinese are playing on a different time frame. They're building investments today for babies that are going to come in 10 years, for population booms that are ramping up. And by the time it's 10 years from now and this big population boom starts to ramp up, the diaper factories are already there. The supply chains are already built. The distribution networks are already in place. It's too late then for other competitors to get into the market when the crest of that baby population starts to really hit. That's the difference in the perception of time. They're not playing on a quarter by quarter basis. And that is the key difference, in my view, from what the Americans do, where we're much more short-term in our thinking. It's an observation, not a criticism. It serves us well in many other ways. But in this long-term thinking, they're playing by a different game.
2: I tend to agree. And I think that's really where the where the heart lies of the difference. Um, rather than necessarily just that, that Western companies or other companies are, are you know, that much more risk averse or have, you know, kind of just, you know, less sophisticated understanding of, of, of African realities. I think it's really that, that, that the decision making is different. Um, and especially in private companies where you need to convince shareholders. You know, it's harder to convince shareholders to to commit to a 10-year plan than it is to commit to a five-year plan. Um, and, you know, I think that, that yeah, the, that really is an interesting difference. Um, but it, it also raises then questions about whether the Chinese companies... Um, are in that relatively more uh, secure position where it is possible for them to to do this kind of long-term planning. Um, Or, as as Kai pointed out, that in a lot of cases they don't really have any choice because they're getting squeezed so much in China. Um, You know, and Africa represents a space with little competition.
1: Well, they do have a choice, though, because... But, yeah, but they they have a choice in whether they go to Africa or they go to Vietnam. Exactly, yes. I mean, there's a clear choice there. In, let me get your take as somebody who studies politics and you interact with a lot of different stakeholders in Europe and the United States on this. In the beginning of our discussion, he's, he started out but with, with a reference to FOCAC. And I thought that was very interesting because the premise of our conversation was on private sector engagement in Africa. And then he starts with FOCAC and he talks about the 10 billion, which is to support private enterprise and all the different pieces of it. And it made me start thinking – that maybe in order for private companies to succeed in places like Africa, it needs that base from the public side. It needs a FOCAC type thing. Now, the Americans have come up with OPIC, which is their development finance agency. That's $60 billion. So they are kind of stepping forward. Macron in France is coming up with $2 billion, But it's not as comprehensive as FOCAC. And so we oftentimes separate the public sector from the private sector. And I'm just wondering now, maybe he's got me thinking here, that in order for the private sector to succeed in a place like Africa, where the margins are thin, where the risk is higher, instability and regulatory and governance are all issues that you have to deal with, that you wouldn't say have to deal with in Singapore, Japan, or Europe. So I'm just wondering that maybe the secret to their success is a FOCAC that does support business, gives the export credits, gives the financing, and gives the political support. As he said, maybe it's just a letter from the foreign ministry, but boy, there's a pathway already built for that. Whereas in the US, we don't have those pathways built already, and the Japanese as well. What do you think about that? I'm just I'm thinking out loud here, just based on what he said.
2: Well, you know I think one of the one of the hallmarks of China Africa business is that there is this blurring of lines between between state state owned corporations and private corporations. You know state owned corporations might well be state owned but and they have an easy access to, to Chinese state funding, but at the same time they act like private corporations in lots of cases including competing with each other for, for you know the, the for tenders. And in in on the other hand, a lot of big private corporations in China act a little bit like state owned corporations in the sense that, you know, a company like Huawei or StarTimes, StarTime is a particularly strong example Um, you know, fulfills a strong public diplomacy role as part of their contracting on, on jobs that are frequently funded by, by Chinese state banks. So there is this blurring of lines, I think, that, that is, is interesting on the Chinese side. And I think, you know, there's a lot of philosophical and policy um, kind of lines that are drawn against that blurring in in the West. Um, you know, and um, as Orby Ruby has pointed out in in previous conversations, um, you know, the, the the U.S. government isn't really it isn't really very easy for them to to do uh, government to government. You know funding at all like they they always have to do, yeah they always have to you know pay businesses and 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 preferably I think only actually like u s businesses, so you know so to find ways to set up and to support those businesses doing work in Africa without crossing any of these kind of Red lines, you know that 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 separate private and public money um, in in the Western system. I think that is one of the challenges.
1: Yeah, and it's. I mean, he didn't touch on this, but as he was talking about kind of the strength of some of the contracting companies, you know, I was just thinking the fact that well, of course they're so large because they have access to this vast pool of capital that GE doesn't or Bechtel doesn't, so they can undercut on price. For almost everything, and knowing that they have a backstop with the Chinese government on financing. And that's, that's really what really angers so many people in the US and Europe who have to compete against Chinese conglomerates for these big contract, these contracting projects. So it's not entirely fair. As you said, the line between public and private is extraordinarily blurry. Uh, it, also, Transin as well has benefited from Chinese loans. So again, we don't know where those lines are. And that's the problem with the lack of transparency in a lot of the dealings with the Chinese government, whereas the British, the Americans and the Europeans have a whole infrastructure of transparency built into their dealings. And we've got things like, you know, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act that require some reporting and transparency so that, you know, in the interactions between a company and a foreign government or a foreign stakeholder, uh, you know, you can't have under the table things that affect the price. So. there are some competitive advantages that are built into the way the Chinese do things that help them in a place like Africa. So listen, this private sector conversation is going to be probably one of our key themes. I was just thinking, Cobus, that in a few weeks we're going to do our year in review, year in preview show, which we do every December ahead of the the coming year. This, by the way, will be our 10th anniversary can you believe that yes january is going to be our 10th anniversary doing the show (laughs) (laughs) and so we're going to do our 10th review and preview show and certainly one that's going to be on my list is the growth of the chinese private sector the venture capitalists uh also uh, in all the different sectors diapers to cars to you name it the the you know we're going to see a big growth there so and i love the optimism that he had also you hear that a lot from chinese investors They're very excited about the China, the African market, really excited about it. That, that's a good thing. You know, that's a, to me, that's a really positive thing. So, so again, Kobus, we'll get our notes ready for the, uh, the year in review show, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of tip my cards a little bit here and private (laughs) sector is going to be one of them. So, uh, everybody, this is the kind of topic that we focus on in our daily email newsletter. This daily email newsletter is really ideal for people who are in the business who do or are china watchers who are studying africa and who want to kind of get a deep dive every single day we you know cobes i mean it is it's a good half hour of reading or 20 minutes of reading i mean you can scan through it but it's pretty thick and and we, both you and i are writing it for it for it every day uh, so if this is something that you would be interested in just go to slash subscribe enter the promo code podcast we'll give you a free month You can try it out. If you don't like it, you can cancel at any time, but you'll start getting the newsletter. uh, And we'd love to have you part of this fantastic community that's starting to take shape around uh, our subscription services. Uh, The China-Africa Experts Network is available to you then. Also, all the content on our website. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening.
0: The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash ChinaAfricaProject to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kwebos at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.ChinaAfricaProject.com.